I guess I've officiated at about over 70 weddings. And, uh, you know, I was pretty flexible about how people wanted to have their service work and they could do different things. But there was, you know, if, if somebody wanted a really short wedding, they said, what do we have to have? You have to have the vows, right? <laughs> you don't have to sing, you don't have to, I mean, there's a lot of things you don't have to, you don't have to exchange rings if you don't want to, but you have to have the vows. And uh, the vows, if I'm going to do the wedding, have to be vows of lifetime commitment, or I'm not going to do it. Susan and I were married, it'll be on uh, December 30th, 51 years ago. It's amazing. And her brother, Jerry, was the pastor who did our wedding. And Jerry, all his years, to this day, <clears throat> always had this little spiel he gave as part of the talk he gave to a couple. And that was he wanted us to know about the old English phrase they used to use in weddings, I pledge thee my troth, which I don't believe I ever used. Uh, but uh, that is an old phrase. We know the word, maybe because we'll say someone who got engaged is betrothed. It was in the uh, King James Bible about Mary. She was betrothed to Joseph. I think that's where I've seen it. Um, Jerry explained at our wedding something we've never forgotten. And that, that the English word, the old English word troth, is where we get our word truth. And to pledge one's troth was to say, I I'm putting my word on the line when I make this vow so that if I ever break this vow, you don't have to believe anything else I ever say. This is my reputation on the line. I pledge thee my troth. I bring this up because uh, Mitch wants to help you during this season to understand what it means when we say that God became flesh at Christmas. If he did, we need to know what this God is like. And I thought it was a very creative idea that Mitch, in order to do that, is taking you through the verse, two verses really, in Exodus 34, 6 and 7, where God passes before Moses. He hides Moses in a crevice in the rock so that he isn't destroyed by the glory of God. And he passes by, and we think when we're reading this, we're going to see something. But we don't see something so much as we hear something. And God proclaims who he is. And you've started into this. The Lord, the Lord, the gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And he goes on, but my assignment today is abounding in love or overflowing with loyal love. Just that phrase. I rarely get to preach on one word or one phrase. This uh, stretched me. I didn't pull this one out of the pastor sermon bag. Um, this word particularly for love is a wonder. It's a treasure. And you're going to see that this word, this phrase, uh, uh, God's uh, abounding loyal love, has like a big old arrow on it 
pointing way down into the future, eventually pointing to Jesus. And after that, pointing to you and to me. Now, I don't generally belabor a congregation with foreign words, Hebrew or Greek, but I heard you were special. <laughs> You're a remarkable group of people. So I have a word for you. Hesed. If you know anything about the Hebrew language, you've got to put a kind of CH sound. Sometimes it's spelled that way with a CH or a K. Hesed. Hesed. I want you to know this word because it's a very unusual and important word in the Bible. And we don't have an English word that does it justice. The musician and author uh, Michael Card actually wrote a whole book about this. I haven't read the book. I was just reading about it. He titled it Inexpressible. He felt he couldn't get his hands around this word. So he just called it Inexpressible Hesed and the Mystery of God's Loving Kindness. That's one way it's translated, especially in King James Bible, as I recall, your loving kindness. The word hesed appears about at least 250 times in the Old Testament. Uh, the New Testament language is Greek, so it doesn't appear that way, but uh, 250 times. And it's translated a little differently depending on the context and whose love is being referred to. Um, and our translations aren't the same because it's such a bear to put into any one word. There's not a general agreement. Uh, if we were going to translate it, and I want to do that for you because you're bright people, you expect that. You'd need, you'd need, uh, well, you need a lot of words. And Mitch, I'm going to need your help here because it's just a whole lot of words. I thought I had this Sunday off. <laughs> I was going to get a child, but I didn't see one. You're going to have to do. Close enough. All these words. I get this from a, 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 an authority, one of our professors that we both know, Dr. Younger. Covenant, loyalty, faithfulness, kindness, goodness, mercy, love, compassion. Take all those words, scrunch them down into one, and you got hesed. That's why I tell you, we got to use the word hesed because we don't have an English word. So loyal love is the one that one of my friends prefers. Uh, a lot of Bible translations do, but it's all of these things. So, could you just hold this the remainder? <laughs> sure. I have long arms. <laughs> you can fold that up. <laughs> Michael Card said, Having said that it's undefinable, that's actually what he was going to call his book, undefinable, my stab at putting words to Hesed is when the person from whom I have a right to expect nothing gives me everything. When the person from whom I have a right to expect nothing gives me everything. Lots of people talk about that God is love. It's not a new idea. What this word does is says, tells us that the way God's love, God loves, is not like what most people think. 
Hesed is not the kind of love you might show to a stranger. It's not used in that kind of a context. It's a covenant word. It's a wedding word. It's a loving and unbreakable commitment made by one person to another, or God to his people, regardless of whether they're worthy. In fact, it has nothing to do with whether they're worthy, nor whether they respond. But it is a bound love. When we first learn this word really well in the Old Testament, uh, we hear it before, but it particularly pertains to God. It describes God in lots of times in the Bible. And it particularly is used to define God's love, his committed covenant love for his people, Israel. He doesn't apply it to everybody. It's for Israel. He's fixed his love on them. And he makes it clear, it is not because you are worthy of it. It's not because you're significant. You're the littlest people. You, you, it's not any of that. He just does it. He just chooses it. Uh, I'm listening to this mystery from which you know you get all kinds of theological insight. Um, but the guy, I remember, he was just the part I listened to, he was talking about this girl that he fell in love with, and she asked what, she lo- what he loved about her, and he said, if I could tell you that, then if that went away, you'd think I don't love you anymore. Well, that's a good point. God fixes his love, his hesed, his covenant-making love, for no good reason other than he does it. He chooses to do it. And he locks in. And he even had this kind of strange covenant ceremony he made with Abraham. Uh, It was dark. It was holy, a holy darkness. There is a sacrifice cut, and the presence of God passes between the parts of this sacrifice. And it's when he makes clear, this is my covenant with you. The word cut is involved. It's It's weird. But it was God's sort of marriage to Abraham and his descendants. Uh, this word appears a lot of times in the Psalms. Uh, you know, one of them, it says, uh, uh, surely, in Psalm 23, surely your goodness and love, or loving kindness, your loyal love, will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's that word. Uh, in Psalm 136, um, that's a kind of interesting psalm. It's not like any others. It's a list of all these things that God has done for Israel. And every verse has a thing, and then it says, your loving kindness endures forever, or your loyal love endures forever. That's Hesed. And it appears, what was it, uh, right? Uh, 20 sometimes, right? That's an important word. And the Bible has some great Hesed stories. Uh, I don't have time for them all. One is the story of Ruth, the story of Ruth and her uh, mother-in-law Naomi and her eventual husband Boaz. The word Hesed is key to that book. It could be called the Book of Hesed. There's another story. Maybe you know it. Maybe it's unfamiliar to you. It's the story of Hosea. Hosea was a prophet who lived in Israel about 800 years before Jesus. And uh, he had a tough job because by the time he comes along, the people of Israel uh, have been off the rails with God for a long time, generations. They have been so disobedient. 
so unresponsive <laughs> that uh, the prophets have been uh, is, you know, speaking to them in vain to try to get them to repent, turn back to God, think of all that he's done for them, and they just will not listen. So God asks uh, Hosea to become a living sermon, and he assigns him a really difficult job. He tells him to go and marry a woman named Gomer. I know, crummy name, <laughs> right? Because we can't dis distance Gomer from the Gomer we know, especially if you're old and the Andy Griffith show and everything. But her, her name was Gomer. And um, she was uh, not the kind of woman you want your son to marry, if you get my meaning. I, I've never forgotten a little description about her that I read by Frederick Beekner. He's one of my favorite authors. He's got this little book called Peculiar Treasures, and it's little bios of Bible people. And the one on Gomer started this way. She was always good company. A little heavy with the lipstick, maybe. A little less than choosy about men and booze. A little loud, but great on a party and always good for a laugh. Then the prophet Hosea came along wearing a sandwich board that read, The end is at hand on one side and watch out on the other. <laughs> what God actually told Hosea in that book is, Go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. Whoa, what? So he does. He marries Gomer. And sure enough, pretty soon she goes back to her old ways. But before that, they have three children. And God has Hosea give them some pretty heavy names. One is unloved. And another one is not my people. That's a handle to hang over your kid when they head off to school. The people, the story. <clears throat> My impression is that for this to work, Hosea had to be pretty well known in Israel as a prophet. The word had to get around. He was kind of like, uh, you know, front page of the, of the society section, this appears. And his, his life became the text of his sermon. And what he was saying is to Israel is this is how you are with God. The God who loves you like I'm going to love her with loyal love. And Hosea pursues her when she is finally kind of used up and uh, despised. He still goes back and gets her. In Hosea 11, God describes himself in a different term, rather than husband, he moves to being like a father to a child, which is also an example of hesed, the love of a parent for a child. It's just there. I didn't pick you. You're my child. I will love you with everything I have, no matter what. That's what God is like. This is what God says in, Hebrew, or in Hosea 11. When Israel was only a child, Brand new. I loved it. 
I called out my son. Called him out of Egypt. Remember the story? The Exodus? Called him out of Egypt. But when others called him, he ran off and left me. He worshipped the popular sex gods. He played at religion with toy gods. Still, I stuck with him. I led Ephraim. That's another name. I led Ephraim. I rescued him from human bondage. But he never acknowledged my help. Never admitted that I was the one pulling the wagon. Then I lifted him like a baby to my cheek. Then I bent down to feed him. And now he wants to go back to Egypt or over to Assyria. Anything but return to me. That's why his cities are unsafe. The murder rate skyrockets. And every plan to improve things falls to pieces. My people are hell-bent on leaving me. So what do you think God should do with people like that? Now that story didn't just happen in a small time. It stretched. That is a story that stretched across generations in Israel. One after another. It just never stopped. These were incorrigible people. And God says, I'm going to send you packing. Then, there's this. He goes on. But, how can I give you how can I turn you loose, Israel? I can't bear to even think such thoughts. My insides churn in protest. And so I'm not going to act on my anger. I'm not going to destroy Ephraim. And why? Here it is. And why? Because I am God and not a human. I am the Holy One and I'm here in your very midst. Well, what can he do? He goes on to say he's going to roar, and it's, the roar is going to sort of scare them back to his arms. But it takes a long time. So there's one more story. It's a Hesed story. <clears throat> now I'm going to take you somewhere, but you're going to have to watch your step. The way we're going to go is very dark. The steps are very steep and uneven and treacherous. We're going to follow in the footsteps of the Son of God, Christ Jesus, and his descent is described in Philippians 2. Most of us have been getting ready for Christmas. Well, I don't know about most. I personally haven't been getting ready for Christmas, but people in our house, have, my person in my house has been getting ready for Christmas. <laughs> You've got your decorations going, the tree, some shopping maybe. You know how the Son of God got ready? This is what it says. Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. The action there is the considering. He did not consider equality with God 
something to be used to his advantage. A bedrock of our Christian faith is that Jesus was both fully man and fully God. And that's what this is saying. The Greek word behind our word being in very nature God is actually a kind of a, a, a hybrid word, a word that isn't typically used. It means uh, literally hyper-being, hyper-being uh, in very nature God. We don't say it that way, but like uh, really and truly being in very nature God might be a way to translate it. And the being word also connotes the eternality of this, being in the past and continuing to be in very nature, God. Now, to be clear, when it says God was, or Jesus was in very nature God, it doesn't mean that he was only divine. There are certain sects that will describe Jesus as divine, but they don't mean that he was fully God. He wasn't just divine. And he didn't just have the spark of divinity in him. That's what people say about human beings sometimes. We all have the spark of divinity in us. That's not what this means. He was in very, he didn't just put God clothes on. He didn't have a God costume. He was in very nature God. As God as God can be. It says that he did not consider equality with God. This speaks of the triune God. There's two, two people in view right here. God the Father, God the Son, not mentioning here God the Spirit. He did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Why not? I mean, God never used his divinity to crush people. He wasn't like the gods of the nations who were fickle and everything. God never was like that. So God the Son wouldn't do that either. What does it mean? He wouldn't use it to his own advantage. Now, let's move on. Watch that first step, because it's a big one. We're going to leave the glory of the highest heaven, the bright glory of the angels. And there is this enormous first step, all the way from there to a dark barn and a dark night in Bethlehem. It says, rather than using his advantages, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. At Christmas, uh, your church, you're very familiar with the idea that um, God, that Jesus took on human flesh. That's not a surprise. Maybe it's a wonder. No doubt about that. It's a wonder. We might blast right past this idea that he took the very nature of a servant. We have never known anyone with the nature of a servant. There's nobody here with the nature of a servant. There are people who are good servants, to be sure, but nobody has the nature 
there's always a wall where I'm not doing that. Don't treat me like a slave. I always joke about how when you go to a restaurant, you have servers. You never have a servant. And I'm convinced that that wasn't a word till restaurant people, waiter, waiters and waitresses started using it. I don't, I don't know that it appears anywhere else. Do you? But we don't want to call them a servant. It's too demeaning. Nobody really wants to be called a servant all the time, everywhere, because that's our nature, except for one person, one human being, Jesus. He not only became a human being, extraordinary miracle as it is, but he became the only human being ever with the nature of a servant. Nothing, no taking advantage of his rights. He laid them by, as one of the Christmas songs says. Now, God had always served his people. There's no doubt about that. In fact, the people were supposed to serve God, but God constantly served his people. He served other people who didn't even pay attention to him. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. He serves all kinds of people. But God's nature wasn't to be a servant. He was a king. He was to be served. Here it's flipped. That's all Hess said, by the way. That's what's going on here. That's why it happens. And it's going to take another huge step. Hold on to the rail. <laughs> and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. I thought he already did that. Yeah, he has. He humbled himself by becoming obedient. Obedient to who? To the Father. To death. The one who was in heaven, who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, he was obedient to death. Oh, oh that's not all. To death on a cross. There is no more humiliating, awful death ever invented by man, and we have thought of some awful stuff. But the public humiliation, the shame, the pain, and on top of all that, the absence of the Father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did he do that? Well, because God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him might not perish but have everlasting life. God had told the prophet Isaiah that it wouldn't be enough for him to just rescue Israel. That, that's not big enough for God. Not vast enough for his love. He was going to reach out to all the world and offer this love any who would receive. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that He would give His only Son to make a wretch His treasure.
when God passed before Moses, protected there in the crevice of the rock, he had identified himself as Yahweh, Yahweh, compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love, overflowing with loyal love. The Hesed. When Moses heard that, despite all the glory of that moment, he could not imagine what he was hearing, what it would look like, what God would do, how far it would overflow, all the way to Jesus. This covenant love, this undeserved love. Listen, God's love isn't just some generic warm blanket that everybody can cuddle under. That's not the way it is. His love is our lifeline. It's an offer of a kind of wedding. When Jesus comes back, we're told that there will be a wedding of his people with him. God's Hesed covenant love is the only way there is out of ourselves out of what we've made of ourselves, out of our wayward ways. Well, let me tell you a story. Jerome. Jerome was a uh, priest and a scholar who lived about 400 AD. He's the one who uh, first translated the uh, Greek New Testament into, uh, Greek and Hebrew, into Latin, the Vulgate. In his later years, he sort of retired, as it were, to Bethlehem. And he, took a, he lived in a cave right next to the cave where it was said that Jesus himself was born. He wanted to be as close as he could. He was very uh, into this, into the Christ child. That's interesting to read what uh, he said. He wrote, Nothing can draw me away from the manger of Christ. There is for me no better place on earth from that very place at which God gave to me his son from heaven. I'd like to send my soul back to him in heaven. He prayed to Jesus. That's what he said. How shall I ever repay this? Let me give you my wealth. To which the child replied, From the beginning, the heavens and the earth are mine. I don't need your treasures. Give them to the poor. I shall receive that as if you had done it to me. Well, Jerome said he would gladly do that. But he went on, I must also give you something just for you. Jesus replied, I'll tell you what you may give to me. Give me your sins. Your bad conscience. And your condemnation. The old man wept and he said, Oh, child, dear, holy child, how deeply you've touched my heart. I thought you wanted something good, but you want everything in me which is bad. Oh, take what is mine. Give me what is yours. Then I shall be free from sin and assured of eternal life. How many times this season are we going to hear in a commercial or someplace? And that's what this season is all about. This is what this season is all about. Don't play your little drum for Jesus. 
That's not what he asks. Don't resolve to do something great for world peace. Give him your sin, and he'll give you his life. Each time sin weighs down upon you, and it will, won't it? We don't come every Sunday feeling like we're great people. Each time we come, give it to Jesus. Run to Jesus. Come boldly to his throne of grace when you feel least like going. His loyal love, his hesed, will always welcome you.